we think about suffering as something bad. I have to get away. It doesn't feel good. Mm. But actually, a little bit of suffering creates resilience and helps us be stronger. This is the Relentless Pursuit podcast, where we hear stories from cross-cultural workers on what it's really like to be a missionary, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So most of our guests on this podcast can only be interviewed um, in audio format because of security reasons. This time is different. We have a guest named Coco who served in Southeast Asia with her family for many years and now serves here in Orlando on our member development team. Um, But we, in this special episode, conducted the interview on both video and audio. So if you would like to see this interview, um, be sure to check out our YouTube channel at Pioneers USA. And you will see not only this interview, but many other resources and videos that we have there. I think what's really great about Coco's story is that she doesn't just share about spiritual formation and suffering as this like theoretical, objective, sort of third person observer. But she has been in the midst of it herself, just really experiencing some incredible hardship. And one of her stories actually comes on just as she and her family were preparing to go overseas to Southeast Asia. So we're going to open up with that story today. In 2006, we went overseas to do a survey trip, which is what people do when they're thinking about doing mission work. So we went over, we visited a team. We had a great time. I was actually pregnant at the time. I was about five months pregnant and we were like out in the village setting and I would even like have to sleep on the wooden slatted floor over the ocean sometimes those nights and it was just a really awesome trip it was a beautiful experience and we really fell in love with that location and we ended up living there eventually but when we came back from that survey trip I started having trouble with my voice and it at first it was kind of like it was just sore maybe like laryngitis and it kept going and it kept going and I went to my doctor and he was like oh let's try this antibiotic oh that didn't work let's try it again oh that's weird that still didn't work and eventually I was diagnosed with a catastrophic vocal cord injury that is very rare and I was actually blessed by getting into a really high level otolaryngologist in Boston where they were able to they basically they put this small machine in your mouth and they run sound sound waves into your vocal cords so you're not speaking at all and they can watch your vocal cords while they're moving so they can see what the dysfunction is. Um, And so this was in 2006 and that technology was brand new. So I was really thankful that I was able to get that, but it was really hard because I was actually at that appointment alone and I was pregnant and I didn't expect there to be bad news. So I didn't bring anybody with me. And when the doctor came in, he brought a counselor with him and he said- Never good news. (laughs) Yeah. He said, I'm so sorry, I have to tell you that you have a catastrophic vocal cord injury. And when we see this injury, we know that you're only going to have a handful of years left with your voice and it will degenerate over the course of some time. We don't know how long. And eventually you're going to have to use a vocal cord, a vocal computer to speak. And it was devastating, as you can imagine. I was actually a singer, so I was a national champion singer in high school and led worship, and that was a huge part of my spirituality. So it was a deeply painful, shocking experience. I did not have any clue, you know, like I was just going and thinking maybe it was like a nodule or something more normal or like, you know, that they could do surgery or something. So um, over the course of the next 10 years, I uh, had very severe vocal cord pain every day of my life. 
And I, you know, knew that it was degenerating. I didn't know how long I would have it. And every day that I used my voice, I felt like I was spending currency that I could never get Mm -hmm. back. So it was so hard because I had little kids. So, you know, even if I had to, one of my little ones was running out in the street, I would be so scared to even like yell at them because I was terrified I was going to rupture it further. And we ended up having to homeschool. So I had to figure out how to homeschool without really being able to speak very much. I couldn't read any books aloud to my children. There were certain things that were much more painful than others. I couldn't do any ministry that I felt called to do or gifted to do. I couldn't teach. I couldn't, you know, speak from the front. I couldn't lead worship. And it was just such a painful experience. I think the hardest part was like I kind of felt trapped in my body because I looked normal. But I couldn't I couldn't like get out sound without being in pain and also just the knowledge of what was coming down the road that it would be gone eventually. Um, And so in, you know, during that time, there was a real deepening that happened inside where it felt like learning to commune with the Lord, like in a a one on one way, because I'm a real extrovert. So up until that point, you know, I'd just be I'd always go for people, talk to people. And during that time, it really taught me to move inward to the Lord. And it was like a deep internal sense of coming to Jesus as my only companion. Like he was like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep who was silent. And so I had a lot of union with him in that, but it was still so painful to like know that, you know, one day, yeah, this is coming. And it felt so threatening. Um, And I had to weigh every opportunity, like, should I use my voice for this or not? Because, you know, this could damage it further. Um, But it didn't really continue to get worse. And then in 2016, one of our supporters was a child otolaryngologist, and he had really high-level connections from when he was in medical school. And he figured out our whole home assignment schedule, and he planned, figured out the best vocal place for me to get a checkup and scheduled it for me. So it was amazing. So he looked at our schedule, and we got me into this place called Lions Voice Center in Minneapolis. And I was just there to visit our supporters and people that cared about us. And my supporters were like, we need to make sure we, they took care of my kids because they thought I was going to get bad news. I would need to have my husband with me. So, you know, he came with me and we go in and they had my records from Boston in 2006 and they'd had the same machine. This is 10 years later. They did the test and then they brought all these doctors in and they were like, look at this. And you could see the two panels. And the old scar, like on the top, the top third of my vocal cords could not touch at all. Mm-hmm. And the new, uh, the new picture was actually I had complete, full, perfect vocal cords. And the scar was much farther off, like off to the side where it was like on the yeah. flesh. Uh-huh. And they said, you know, back when we first were discovering this injury, when our technology was newer, we thought that nobody's vocal cords could ever heal from this. We thought that this was damage that was permanent. But now we know some people actually get their vo- vo- vocal cords actually yeah. can regrow uh-huh. and I was like well why has it been hurting so much you know like why does it still hurt and they said well you've been using these muscles to push your vo- voice together which is what you had to do because your vocal cords weren't working but now you need to learn to speak normally again so I went back to physical therapy and since that was right after that was when I went back to seminary and was able to like go into my own like full-time ministry and take on a lot more work that I feel called to do Um, But I think that as I look back on that, that's when I became really passionate about how God uses suffering in our lives to form us. And that's led me to where I am now in my academic work and studying like people from the past and how God has formed them through their suffering. And what practices did they use to 
bolster their courage in the midst of their suffering. And for me, I know it was like a hollowing out. Like it was like hollowing out the container of my soul to make more space for God through losing so much capacity. It was like in my weakness that he brought me to himself. Right. Wow. That's an amazing story. Okay, so just to back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you went on your vision trip to Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. right? You came back and you discovered you had this catastrophic, like, life-changing mm-hmm. injury, right? Mm-hmm. That not only is just terrible in and of itself, but also affects your particular giftings and callings that the Lord has put on you, right? And then you decided to go to Southeast Asia anyway. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about that and how you guys made that decision. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a lot. It actually really just crystallized what my role had to be. Yeah. You know, in a way, it was like it limited what what my options were. And my husband is a very gifted and he was working with the local church in mm-hmm. that area. And he had a visa to work among the local church and to work in seminaries mm-hmm. and train local pastors. And so what it did was it just really crystallized my role. And I ended up being able to really stabilize our family mm-hmm. in the midst of multiple moves. Right. We lived on three different islands. We had two different teams over the course of those 11 years. And I was able to provide like a really stable space yeah. for the family and provide a lot of continuity for our kids while my husband ended up traveling. And, you know, I had to reconcile to myself. I feel called to be doing this work. Mm-hmm. And somehow I had to appropriate the, the job of being the stable person, the anchor in the home as being actually real mission work. And that I was able to do that. I was able to make a shift mentally to it's OK. And this is what I'm able to do now. And I was I think our kids really did well because they did have one person who was really dedicated to that space and that I kind of just had to make the best of it. Right. Right. Because I could imagine. I mean, I've definitely heard of a lot of. Uh, women who they go overseas and that's a real struggle for them when they kind of have to be doing homeschool and taking care of the family and the mm-hmm. home and doing sort of all these sort of more traditional roles mm-hmm. than a lot of American women are not used to anymore mm-hmm. and then seeing their husband get to go and do kind of like all the glorious sort of stuff so I mean yeah. that must have been a little bit of a transition for you yeah that, it was but. hard because I mean since I was at camp in eighth grade I felt called to right, be right. in the ministry mm-hmm. you know and so for me, it was, I actually think it was almost a gift of grace because by removing the possibility, it just made it like, well, this is the option that I have. If we want to be doing this work, this is the way it's going to have to look. Mm-hmm. And I was able to really kind of find ways to work around it. Like I was able to still do a lot of one-on-one conversation. So I did a lot of discipling with women who are college age. And I had a vibrant group of about 20 girls that I walked with through their lives. You know, I was with there when they had their first babies. I was there when they got married. Um, And so I probably wasn't taking on like the front person the way I might naturally want to be up in front teaching or something like that. But I was able to grow in that one on one discipleship mode. And then I, I made my home much more of a hospitable space and learned how to do that and make that a welcoming space and provide opportunities for people to meet together there. So and then I also did a, a large ministry where I taught women how to study the Bible on their own. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't leading from the front, but I taught them how to read the Bible in a, a way where they could go deeper with it. And we would meet together in community and talk as a group. So they weren't relying on me because I couldn't be at the front like I would probably want to do. But I was still able to teach them a method for learning to read the Bible and study it on their own. So I feel like in a way it kind of like directed me on this side path that I would have never gone down that both formed me spiritually, but also grew gifts that I probably would have never invested in on my own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that like 
opportunity just to invest so much in those individual lives mm-hmm. in such like a significant way, especially during this period of your life when you were going through a lot of other stuff, traumatic mm-hmm. stuff in your life. I mean, that's such, I mean, that's such an incredible like opportunity that you're given. And mm-hmm. I can imagine just like the fruit that will come that you'll maybe get to hear about more of, mm-hmm. you know, in the future one day in heaven or whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's cool. You can actually keep up with people now on yeah, that's Facebook. True. And, you know, I'm still friends with them. We still connect. That's what's so cool. cool about it is I think back in the day, once you moved, you would have to break that relationship. But now, like, I'm mm-hmm. kind of journeying with them still on WhatsApp. Yeah. yeah. So uh-huh. it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's cool. So now you're back here in the U.S. and mm-hmm. working on our member development team. And your work is focused on caring for people that were in your shoes, Mm -hmm. maybe not dealing with the exact same challenges that you were as far as suffering, but their own suffering that they are bringing with them. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do here now with our field workers? Sure. Yeah, we have a really vibrant team of about 20 people in member development here. And our whole job is to help our missionaries thrive on the field. My particular role is to care for the adult missionaries that live in certain regions. And so I walk with them, I journey with them, we check in, we talk as needed, care for them, and I provide a lot of resources. I also develop and run our component of the launch, which is our preparation for the outgoing missionaries. Mm -hmm. So I'm in charge of kind of making sure our trainers have what they need, developing their curriculum. I'm very passionate about preparing new missionaries. And so I've put a lot of time and energy with my team into developing a more robust curriculum for new missionaries that matches what the field wanted here with Pioneers. So our our um, our department is just so passionate about helping people thrive. And it's a huge asset. You know, if you're thinking about coming with Pioneers, know that we are not just about getting you on the field. We're about helping you stay mm-hmm. and thrive. Yeah. Now, one thing you, one phrase that you've mentioned several times is this is spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe define what you mean by that? For us? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think of spiritual formation as the activity with God of discipleship, of growth, of change and transformation over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. Like I think about that one little phrase in Romans 12 that says, be transformed. It's the same root formed. What does it mean? How are we transformed? It is actually a divine passive. It is something that God is, it's imperative. God is telling you, you have to do it, but you can't do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Be transformed. So a lot for me of spiritual formation is providing practices and resources to get in the space for God to do his work. You're not going to be formed if you're out here always working, always doing stuff. You have to sit down. You have to get in communities where you're going to grow. You have to sit with your Bible and be in certain spaces where it's going to actually cultivate that growth. So that's kind of how I think of spiritual formation as being in, in the pathway of transformation. Yeah. That's so interesting because you would think, right, So, because obviously you're doing this kind of work and training and providing resources for people who are on the field, for current workers, missionaries, right? Mm-hmm. But from like the average person's standpoint, right, like missionaries should already be pretty like <laughs> high up there on like the spiritual level scale, so to yeah. speak, right? So it's sort of like how much further do they have to go? So, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, because they are working. And so they're like busy doing stuff all the time, right? Yeah. So when they're busy like evangelizing and planning churches and learning the language and all that, I mean, how do they find time to like get away from that and do kind of this like quiet, you know, you pull yourself away and, yeah. you know, meditate on the Lord or whatever it is that it takes. So, I mean, speaking yeah. to a little bit of that kind sure. of, yeah, like missionaries already should be 
up there. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't they? Yeah. Well, we absolutely want our missionaries to be <laughs> godly, mature people. Right. And yet we're all human beings. Right. And we all come and we're launched in the season of life where we're at. So we're all growing. We don't expect our missionaries to be perfect. We don't expect them to already have it all. I think a lot of times you when you read about missionary biographies and you get ready for to become a missionary, you're like, I'm going to get on the plane and I'm going to walk out and I'm going to be like Amy Carmichael. <laughs> and the moment I step on the field, I will be able to convert the masses, you know. But you're still your same person with all your same sin, your same temptation. You carry your story with you. And you only know what you know now. You know, God takes us to different layers at different seasons in our lives. So you might come to a season in your 30s that's different than it was in your 20s when you left for the field. And in your 30s and you have a child and you look in the eyes of your four-year-old and you realize, wow, I was really wounded when I was four years old, you know, by this experience that I had. But I didn't really work on that until I had a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are the layers and the depths that God works on. You're not ever arrived in your spiritual life. We all need to constantly be working on internal transformation with mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so in the second part about like, how does that work when we have so much to do mm-hmm. on the field, right? Like we want to go, we need to plan our churches. We need to do these things. That's absolutely true. But one of the classic metaphors that you see in scripture about abiding mm-hmm. is that concept that growth only happens when you're planted mm-hmm. and your roots are down deep in soil that's nourishing you. Right. And so for me, it's more about cultivating rich soil and providing opportunities for the soil for growth. And as I'm in those opportunities where I am going to grow because I have a faithful community or I'm doing spending time with the Lord in prayer or journaling and reading my Bible, then I can expect to grow and to bear fruit because I am doing both. I am out and practicing in the world and I'm also going deep in my time alone with the Lord and in my community. Just like Jesus, how whenever the crowd started pressing in, Sometimes he went away Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's so surprising when he did that. But he had that relationship with the spirit where he and the father where he knew he knew, you know, I need to step away and I need to deepen and go internal for a while and refill my tanks with the father. Right, right. And going back to your story of when you lost your voice and when you were on the when you're in Southeast Asia and you were talking about how you kind of had to be like hollowed out Mm -hmm. for the Holy Spirit to come like and like mm-hmm. basically rebuild you, I mm-hmm. suppose, right? So is that kind of what you did at that time? How does that, like how did the spiritual formation, the whole creating this fertile ground, so to speak, how did that happen when you were in Southeast Asia and you're also yeah. dealing with your vocal cords and everything? Mm-hmm. I really think with all spiritual formation is very dynamic, right? It, that's why it's be transformed. It's the concept of like, you are doing something, but in another way, you're not. Mm-hmm. So you're making yourself available for God to do the work. You're putting yourself in the pathway mm-hmm. for growth. So for me, one of the biggest things that I did was get go in deep with a mentor who could really walk with me in my pain. Mm-hmm. So there were layers and depths of pain that I was going through as I was on the field. So it wasn't like just right at the beginning, I grieved and then I was done. Right. When you have a major loss or you're suffering with chronic illness, you feel that suffering again in cycles of grief where you're going deeper, really, like almost like a spiraling mm-hmm. depth that God is allowing deeper unfurling, mm-hmm. you know, inside of yourself of realizing some of the losses. You know, as my children got older, they weren't babies anymore. It was a new loss in the sense that I couldn't have long conversations with them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sing loud in the car with them, you know, so there would be new losses that I would have. So I have, and this is something that we love all of our missionaries to do. I had a really close relationship with a couple of mentors that I would talk with once a month or email if I was really struggling with my voice and I couldn't talk. 
we'd have to email, Mm -hmm. you know, and they would give me new pathways. They would say, hey, it looks like, you know, you're thinking about this. How about this book? You know, um, they would offer new opportunities and new resources to me that I wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. if I hadn't asked Mm -hmm. them. And that's actually part of my job and my role now when I'm talking with the missionaries on, on the field is they experience new things to offer them things that they don't know about. So they might be struggling with, they can't get their visa. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I could tell them a story about my life and then I offer them, you know, a new resource of what to do when, you know, you, you, there's no pathway open for you or something like that. So I think one of the biggest things is involving yourself with other people and sharing and being open in community with other people. Mm -hmm. And that was what I did and she's, she's still with me now. Yeah, so it's been a really powerful relationship, a transformational relationship Mm -hmm. for me to go to those deepest levels with her over time. Yeah. I think one of the things, you know, we you mentioned the people that you had in your life that were mentors within the mission world or your church world back home. Um, you served in a place that has many unreached people groups, but also there is a vibrant church there, growing bodies of believers um, that are local there. Um, are there things that you learned from them in terms of facing suffering and enduring um, and spiritual formation that maybe you wouldn't have gotten? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. For us, there was two things that really come to mind that I learned about suffering from the country and the people that I live with. And one of the main things that I learned was through the process of what it meant to go through grief. Mm. In America, my experience, typically, it's very private. When a person dies, we go private, we are alone, we're away. Um, we kind of want our space and we're alone. And even the way that we celebrate our funerals are very um, detached from the person often. And in the location where we were, there was no distance (laughs) from the person. So they would lay out the dead body of the beloved person and you would come close and you would touch them and you would speak to that person and then they would quickly bury it and we would do it together and you would be singing songs you would be walking through the whole village together with this body, and then you go and walk to the communal burial ground and place the body in the ground. So and you then, could also be a part of this, yes, like walking through yes. it, even if it's not necessarily like your I best friend. I was much man. more a part of it than I wanted to be, honestly. <laughs> yeah, so if you were a woman, you were invited in to pre- prepare the body. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I was a part of that process as well, <laughs> yeah. And so I think it really helped me understand the disconnect we have a little bit with the process of dying, but also how much grief is a more powerful and it's actually almost more efficient in a community experience. Yeah. Not in a way of like trying to push through it faster, right. but in a sense of going deeper together mm. because you're not alone in your private world all by yourself, but you're able to share together. And some of my friends, they would get together, we'd be at the funerals, they would just be throwing themselves in my arms, weeping out loud, which was important to do Uh because it actually honored the person who had passed away by by wailing and weeping in a very loud way. It was honoring of the dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it also I could see what a benefit it gave to her to be able to do that in community and to just be free with Uh the loss that she was experiencing. So that's one thing. And then that other thing about suffering in general that I learned living overseas is just how protected we are here from Mm -hmm. suffering. I mean, we obviously live in a very prosperous country with, you know, so much just infrastructure available Mm -hmm. to so many of us. Of course, not everyone, but most of us have access to medical care. Most of us have access to our basic needs. 
and just seeing what it was like for my close friends to live off of two or three hundred dollars a month mm-hmm. and to do so with joy mm-hmm. and to share freely with one another. And just they would try to share with me, you know, <laughs> and it was just something that kind of blew my mind of how just connected they were with their reality and how much bigger capacity they had to suffer, honestly. Yeah. And have you guys ever heard of the biodome too? This is like an analogy we talk about a little bit in my role. Mm. There's this biodome where they created the perfect atmosphere for all plants to thrive. Oh, I, I think I have. Yeah. Too. And they found out through this biodome that trees need wind in order to grow because mm-hmm. the trees that were inside the biodome were just collapsing under the fact that they were not receiving wind. The wind actually creates a certain kind of resistance in the bark and an enzyme that helps the bark get firm. And I think that's an example of like we think about suffering as something bad. I have to get away. It doesn't feel good. Mm. But actually, a little bit of suffering creates resilience and helps us be stronger. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I learned from my friends there in that country was that they had suffered a lot, Mm -hmm. but they didn't see it all as suffering the way I did. Mm -hmm. You know, just because they lived in a with a dirt floor, they didn't even see that as a bad thing. That was normal to them. And they had created such a bigger capacity to endure and experience loss and experience lack that just blew me out of the water. And Mm -hmm. it really, to this day, it, it has changed me. It's changed what I think I need to do to have in order to be happy. Mm -hmm. Because I could see that they were happy with very little. You know, they were happy to be together. And they were happy to be able to worship freely, Mm. you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, so, like, what you said about how, like, in the U.S., yeah, like, we are very protected. It's a very prosperous nation. There's a lot of, you know, systems in place to help us when we are not doing well, right? And so I think it's often easy, especially for younger people, to be like, to kind of like tamp down on any suffering that they have had because they're like, oh my goodness, like I should not be complaining if I compare myself to people in Southeast Asia or people in Africa or whatnot, right? So what would you say to people like that Mm. who just say like, oh, I'm just going to ignore my suffering because really it's nothing compared to what other people Mm. have experienced? Well, I think it's a, I think that's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Because I think the best option is when God invites you. Mm-hmm. You think of suffering as an invitation. God didn't doesn't cause suffering, mm-hmm. but he allows it to be a pathway. Mm-hmm. That's the paradox. Right. The yeah. paradox is he does not cause it, but that he makes it somehow produce resurrection in our lives. It's like built into creation that things that fall down and die come back to new life. Like mm-hmm. the seed that goes into the ground and dies bears fruit for discipleship. It makes no sense. That's the kingdom that's Mm -hmm. built into the world that we live in. In the same way for us, embracing the opportunity, the suffering that we have as an opportunity for depth to Mm -hmm. be transformed. In my perspective, that's that same pathway. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character Mm -hmm. and character hope. Mm -hmm. And so you see God actually laid that out for us. So instead of saying, oh, that's not bad, saying this is real Mm -hmm. and this is an opportunity for me to go into this pain with Jesus, you know, like you see him doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right. Yeah. He wasn't like, oh, it's no big deal, guy. You know, he was like, take this cup from me. That was his example to us was to say, please, Father, not my will, but yours be done. But I will do this, you know, to the point of sweating blood. Yeah. Right. He was in agony, you know, but he took the path of suffering. And that's what bore mm-hmm. new life and resurrection for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. We've seen... um You've mentioned your that a lot of this has driven deeper interest in you in studying this, and I know that you're working on graduate studies 
in the area of spiritual formation, but not necessarily what happens now, but how people in the past grew in their faith. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're learning and what you're studying related to that? Sure. I'm still early. I'm just starting my PhD in spirituality and suffering. So it's really theology of suffering, practical theology. And I'm very passionate about people in history who have suffered and who have endured great suffering mm -hmm. and who continue to turn to the Lord and allow that suffering to help them grow. And I, it started when I was in my master's program. I didn't mean to study this. <laughs> I just like every time I didn't mean to study separately. I, I, I was like, it's just something I was so curious about. It was like, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's right. like, it's completely mind blowing. And to me, it's just such a example of the way that the paradox of new life is built into the world, that this is somehow the path of growth that God has for mm -hmm. us. And so I just, I'm so curious to see that unfold in people's lives. So every paper that I wrote for my master's, I did a master's in church history, I just ended up studying different people and how they suffered and what they did and what they learned and what can we learn from them. And it's been really cool and really actually quite practical. I know a lot of people think yeah. history, what is that? You know, that's so boring. But I think we need to learn from the past, just like we need to learn from other cultures. We need to learn from the past because God was there. Mm. He was present in the lives of our brothers and sisters who went before us. And there's so much that we can learn from them throughout time. And so one person that I really was interested in is Julian of Norwich. A lot of people are familiar with her, but she is a woman from about the 13th century. And she went through a period of very deep suffering where she mm -hmm. almost died. And through that process, went into this very deep season of getting to know the Lord and she was a huge inspiration for C.S. Lewis, oh. which was how I got interested mm -hmm. in her because he used a lot of her um, motifs in her books that mm -hmm. she wrote from that were about the ways that God revealed himself to her as he kind of unfolded Narnia. And she had this one idea that I think is just really fascinating, um, that she had this idea that if God came in his first time to us in the form of the incarnation, which no one expected, mm -hmm. But in the incarnation resolved so many problems for us by dying on a cross, a way no one expected, then we should believe that the time he comes again is mm. going to be just as mm. unbelievable, unexpected mm -hmm. and powerful reformation. And so that's why in Narnia, spoiler alert, <laughs> you have the Narnia within the Narnia. Mm -hmm. And because he was showing that there is something deeper that was going on here. Um, and so she's someone that I just love to read her experience of God because she saw him as her king. She experienced him both very imminent, so above, more powerful than her, but also, um, sorry, imminent inside of her and close to her, but also transcendent and powerful over her. And in her mind, it was like the only path to think about God is that he's both near Mm -hmm. As close as could be inside your very heart, but also ruling the whole world mm -hmm. because he has to be near enough to love us, to want to help us right. and powerful enough to do it. Yeah. You know, and that's like a thought that I've carried with me a lot. Yeah. 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 I think we have perceptions of people in that day and age that they were living <laughs> in the dark ages. They didn't know the things that we know. They might not have had all of the resources we have. Um, spiritually, the resources. The resources we had. Um, their churches were corrupt, and so there's there's just all sorts of stereotypes about that. But it sounds like, as you're describing it, you know, there are people that had real deep faith and understanding that of things that we don't know that's maybe been lost to history. Yeah. And so this is a process of kind of uncovering some of these things. And I know you, you know, some of the things you've talked about, 
um, using this terminology like spiritual formation, there's practices that accompany this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I think most of us that were brought up in the church have an understanding of praying and reading your Bible every day and going to church um, and worshiping. And there's kind of, there's a few things that we all know are expected of us, but are there other things as well that maybe you've learned that practices or habits of people in ages past and even missionaries even that Mm -hmm. have helped them grow in their faith Mm -hmm. and overcome suffering and become even closer to God in the midst of whatever they're living in. Yeah. Well, one thing that happened that was cool because it actually intersected with my job here (laughs) is that I took this class called Reformation Era Spirituality. And so it was all about the spirituality of the Reformation era. And that's not my favorite era. It just feels like it's fraught with just so much tension, you know? So I was like not looking forward to this class. And I asked, and we were supposed to write this one paper. And I was like, I don't want to write that. So I asked my professor if I could study suffering in the Reformation era Mm -hmm. and all of the strands of different types of faith within the Reformation era and how did they approach their suffering. And what I learned through that paper was that they were all praying through the Psalms when they suffered. Hmm. And I basically developed a resource that we use here at our debriefing event for the missionaries. When the missionaries come back during their home assignment after two or three years for refreshment, they come here and we have this event for them. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Their kids get to come. It's so refreshing. And we have these different opportunities for them to connect with the Lord. And so I actually developed a workshop called Praying the Psalms where I taught them how to do that because I think it's really accessible. You just come to the Psalms and you read through the Psalms and you see what comes up as you're reading. Mm. Some of the Psalms are just very painful Mm. and they bring up a lot of our negative emotion, but in a way that's very safe because it's in the safety of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And these are words that were inspired, you know, so we know that it's okay to talk to God this way. Mm -hmm. And so as we see David saying, you know, deep calls the deep in the roar of his waterfalls, you know, all your waves and breakers are crashing over me. Mm -hmm. We can also say, Mm -hmm. you know, God, why are you letting this really difficult thing happen to me? You know, that question Jesus asked on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, normalizing that kind of um, question and welcoming those kinds of questions in the presence of God through a journaling activity like praying the Psalms is something that our missionaries can do anywhere that they are Uh all around the world. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, I know you've been talking a little bit about how you've been using, um, you know, some of the stuff that you've studied and your experiences Mm -hmm. to minister to workers now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking with them while they're on the field, after they come back from the field, all that, like, what kind of stuff comes up? Like, what kind of issues? (laughs) What kind of, like, are there any, like, themes or patterns that Mm -hmm. you've, like, noticed? Or, like, oh, like, these are, like, something particularly that, you know, for this generation, for example, that we really need to pay attention to. Mm. Well, the number one thing that I think we need to be paying attention to is the loneliness. Mm. And I think that there's nothing wrong with being lonely. I think there are times and seasons when God calls us into places where we are alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Jesus when he went out into the wilderness. So sometimes we are in places where we're alone. And actually, that is an opportunity to welcome Jesus to be your friend, to be like your companion in that moment. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that I think because of social media, it's very hard for a lot of younger missionaries to just be alone for a while. Mm -hmm. It's not normal in our society. We're just inundated all the time with people that even sometimes that we don't know, (laughs) that we feel like we're friends with, you know, like celebrity people and bloggers, like blogger moms, you know, stuff like that, that we're just, we can just saturate ourselves with that. 
And guess what? Even in the most remote places in Southeast Asia, you can get on the internet, you can get on Facebook, you can still connect with people. And so we found that there's actually a real problem for a lot of our missionaries in when they face that loneliness because it's just so easy to move into, okay, going back into my social media instead of saying, you know what? It's okay to be lonely right now. I am lonely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're going to be lonely when we move to a new country. We don't know anyone yet. And so instead of just being patient and waiting for those relationships to come, it is very easy to just slide into what's normal for us and with social media. So that's one area where I think spiritual formation can be a benefit because if you sit with the Lord and you're like, and you just allow the feelings to settle and you say, oh, I'm feeling lonely and actually saying that to yourself Mm -hmm. rather than just going right to you feel it, but you didn't acknowledge it. You Mm -hmm. didn't engage with God on it, but you just go then to social media. Mm -hmm. If we're able to allow those feelings to emerge and bring them to God, and be like, this hurts. This is hard. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just yeah. like Jesus was lonely. You know, there is a real communion with Jesus that can happen in that place. Right. I know from my voice that is very lonely, mm-hmm. you know, that you can go to a place of union with Christ in your loneliness that will deepen you to a place where you can have a sense of being with him and having solidarity with him, even when no one else mm-hmm. is around. Mm-hmm. So that is one area where I think, you know, as in our organization, we talk about a lot, like how can we encourage our missionaries to just sit in that place and welcome Jesus into that space? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that ties in so well with what you were saying earlier about how, you know, one way or another, you know, we kind of try and ignore the suffering or try and tap it down or say Mm -hmm. it's like not a big deal, right? And so it's just Mm -hmm. kind of this tendency um, of people, especially like with all the inundation of like social media, right, Mm -hmm. to just kind of like skip over it. And find ways to either like distract or find mm-hmm. something else to do or whatnot, right? But what you're saying is to, you know, part of what the Lord is calling us to do in our suffering mm-hmm. is to kind of just like sit in it, yeah, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You sit in it and you welcome him mm-hmm. and you say, what do you have for me? Mm-hmm. You know, where where are you? Are you with me mm-hmm. here? I'm really passionate about this one Old Testament theologian, mm-hmm. Walter Brigham's work on the area of what hesed love means, which we see it often is translated as steadfast love and faithfulness. Mm-hmm. He's a Hebrew scholar, is very well known in the area of spirituality and lament. Mm-hmm. And he would translate the word hesed love, steadfast love, as tenacious solidarity. Mm-hmm. So if you went through the Old Testament, every time you saw those words, steadfast love and faithfulness, and put in tenacious solidarity, what would happen? How would you see God differently? Mm -hmm. In your pain, when you feel alone, he's never leaving you. And I think there's a lot there in suffering with the solidarity that we have in Christ that God is trying to create union with us in our suffering by being present with us. And you can't be present with him if you're on social media. (laughs) You know, you're only present here. You're reading, you know, inappropriate material or like getting on YouTube Mm -hmm. or whatever you're doing, you know, to try to fill up that space. Right, right, right. Yeah. And this is something I think people take for granted that missionaries struggle with these same things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and they're in context where they don't necessarily have the same support structures mm-hmm. to help them through it. And so it's important to have that foundation of spiritual maturity and you know kind of the the ballast in your soul to help you get through these times because there's not going to be someone there necessarily to help you. And and I think what you're saying is that this is not an opportunity to self-medicate or to try to to numb it, but mm-hmm. to sit with it and to mm-hmm. invite Jesus in, mm-hmm. into it as well. Mm-hmm. And and I've been noticing even more 
more and more lately in, you know, you see this in stories online of people that were in missions and they left um, for one reason or another. They came home and now their views on what they were involved in might have changed. They might begin to have second thoughts. Um, Some of them might even be deconstructing from their faith or moving into a version of faith that would even look down on what they were doing. And it does seem like some of the common denominators are suffering that was maybe not dealt with or was maybe dealt with in a hurtful way by someone around them. Mm-hmm. And um, and they, there wasn't an approach that, that allowed them the space to do that, maybe. Um, and I'm wondering if you've seen, it, seen that, maybe, or even um, the possibility of that happening, even to some of the people that you've cared for mm-hmm. and helped, and how you really help people mm-hmm. process that. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the problem of suffering because... I like problems, and this problem right. is not going away, guys. <laughs> this is like the problem, yeah, the problem right. of evil, the problem of suffering. It's the problem of our humanity that mm-hmm. started with the fall and will right. stay with us until new creation mm-hmm. when Jesus comes mm-hmm. again. And when I think about, I have, do have a lot of friends that are struggling with deconstruction or, or doubting or experiencing a lot of confusion in their faith. And I have a very close loved one as well who has gone through that. And I think at the core to me, I think, that we think as Western Christians that we need to have an answer for every Mm. theological problem. Mm. And I need to have this exact formula. And we present our faith that way a lot of times. But we're not going to have that with suffering. Mm. You know, we have a Savior who died. You know, so that there's a paradox built in that what has been asked of us is to have faith. Faith implies that we will not have an answer. Right. So if you are trying to say, I, I have to have this answer in order to believe, then that's not faith. Faith, mm-hmm. it's okay to doubt. Mm-hmm. It's okay even to have skepticism in my mind because that implies if you're holding to Jesus that you have faith because you are saying, I actually have questions, but I'm remaining and I'm sitting with him and I'm staying with him even though there's doubt swirling, mm-hmm. you know, even though people have let me down. You know, I've been hurt. I've had leaders that have failed me. You know, and I think those are all invitations to go back inward to the Lord with it and to be like, this person failed me. Guess what? Surprise, surprise. You know, we're all human. There's a lot of really, you know, broken people. And I feel like the way that American leadership structure as well is very, um, we've set ourselves up for this in a lot of ways. And that is another thing that I learned about in Southeast Asia was just that communal relationships really held the faith together. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't always have to have it together because I could rely on you. Mm-hmm. You could be like, it's okay, we're doing this together. Come to church with me. And we're so individualistic in America. It's like I have to, in my head, have everything figured out inside my brain mm-hmm. instead of being like, hey, help me today. Hey, I need your help. And you'd be like, we're doing this together. Let's go. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're missing. And we're also missing uh, the space for questions to just be unresolved Mm -hmm. because there are going to be unresolved questions on planet Earth. That is the, you know, that is the problem of the fall that we Mm -hmm. live with. Mm -hmm. So I do. I think it's really hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So much. (laughs) Stop. Yeah, I mean, so deep. Like, I mean, it's funny because you're like, there is no answer. Yeah, a lot of times, right? That's almost the answer is that there is no answer, right? Mm-hmm. But then it's kind of amazing to think that, like, the problem of suffering is mm-hmm. then what the Lord uses to then create 
mm-hmm. rebirth and resurrection and all those mm-hmm. things, right? So, I mean, just how that yeah. falls into the Lord's redemptive plan is mm-hmm. kind of mind-blowing, especially mind-blowing. when you, like, really start to kind of think about it, right? I know. Yeah. Think about Job. Yeah. His friends all wanted to give him answers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, they all were like, what about this? What about this? Are you, it's your, this person's fault. It's that person's fault. Uh-huh. In the end, what does Job say? I know that my Redeemer lives, mm-hmm. and on that day he will stand upon the earth. There had never been a resurrection before. Mm-hmm. Right. How did he know that? Yeah. And the same thing with Abraham. When God called him to sacrifice his only son, the heir of the promise, mm-hmm. he had to walk up Mount Moriah, which completely confounded the promise of God. Right. Mm-hmm. And he went up anyway, and it says later in the New Testament that he did it because he believed that God could create life from the dead mm-hmm. and bring something back to life or create something that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So he believed in resurrection too, and yeah. there had never been resurrection. Yeah. Right. Right. So right. to me, it's like there has to be some kind of, that's the core, mm-hmm. is that within the mystery, we don't have the answer, and that God is calling us to faith anyway. And it's the faith that always, for Abraham to count it as righteousness. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, thank you, Coco. Thank you for that. Very encouraging. Now it is time for quick fire questions. Oh, okay. Let's see what happens. Yeah. yeah. So you don't have to think too much about these questions. Just give us quick, instinctive answers that come to your mind. And if there's some you want to pass on, just say pass and we'll move on because we've got okay. plenty here. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yep. Okay. So most cultures are either tea cultures or coffee cultures um but as a person are you tea person or a coffee person i am tea in southeast asia tea in europe coffee in america okay (laughs) romans to the romans it depends on where are you an early bird or a night owl I'm like a middle person. Middle owl. You know? Okay. Yeah. Seven to 11. You know? (laughs) Let's not be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If you do stay up late, what is your go-to late night snack? Oh, salted caramel. Chocolate covered salted caramels. Oh. One a night. I have one every night. Okay. (laughs) Is there a specific brand that you like? I typically just buy the ones at Costco because you can get so many. And the chocolate flavor is very good. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. It's like a, it's like a ritual you have before you go to bed. Oh, yeah. But I mean a couple hours before bed. Let's not. Okay. (laughs) No, yeah. Because we're not crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We're not crazy. (laughs) So winter, spring, summer, or fall? I love the winter in my heart because I grew up going there with my family at Christmas and I just love being in the cold, and I grew up skiing, mm-hmm. so I love the winter. But after living in Southeast Asia, I can't be cold anymore. <laughs> so I think I will have to change now and be more like an autumn person. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Window or aisle? The aisle. Yeah. So I have to be able to get out. I don't like yeah. to feel trapped. Yes. <laughs> and if you're traveling, what is your must-pack item? You can't say Bible either. Everybody says Bible. No. But that's, a, that's a given. We yeah, it's on your phone. Right. And it's yeah. That's what I say. I know. Well, I started doing this when I had little kids, and it just, it's like a mental thing for me now. I always travel with like a little pack of Via in case I get really, really tired. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I don't even put it in water. Oh, I just like, <laughs> yeah. Just so I can like wake it. up because we do a lot of travel, like yeah. international, really far travel, and you have jet lag, and then you have to go to a meeting and you're tired. So you're just like, well, we're fine. <laughs> That's like straight espresso or something. Yeah, it's straight, straight up. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Yes. And I hardly ever use it, but it's just knowing that it's knowing in my it's purse. Uh-huh. I just feel yeah. like I have yeah. power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your favorite local dish where you lived in Southeast Asia? I really loved like a noodles with chicken mm-hmm. and like spinach and kind of like a little bit of a sweet soy kind of yeah. flavor. Is it Very spicy nice. or 
I don't plant. like it spicy. You, know, you can always add more spice. Yep. But I didn't like yeah. it very spicy. Yeah. And my kids, because they were born over there, they loved it. They put it on. I just dump it on their high chair, and they'd just be like this, <laughs> and they would hold it like roast, and the noodles were just like hanging, <laughs> going everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's cool. How about a talent that you wish you had? I wish I could play the piano like you, Mel. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> How about a missed comfort from home? From home, like growing up, or from where I lived. Well, when you when you lived overseas, mm-hmm. what was a comfort from here that you missed? Oh, hmm, that's a good question. I don't we can ask if you want. Answer. Maybe you were just completely satisfied. Yeah, and happy I was. You're just so so full of the Lord's provision. You didn't yeah. have to think about home. I really miss like workout classes. I know that's not like a comfort from home, but it's like something you could not replicate. Right, right, right. You know, so I really, I love working out in groups. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't know. That's a good answer. So extroverted. Yeah, so <laughs> extroverted. I can't even work out by myself. Is there a strange tradition that you witnessed? Uh, you described the burial. That's pretty strange. Yeah. 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 I mean, in some places, there's some really interesting, like, where they will take the ashes of the deceased and, like, put it in a like a paper mache kind of a coffin oh, wow. and like send it out into oh. the ocean. Yeah. yeah, that would be, that's really interesting because you actually watch them burn the body mm-hmm. inside of a a paper mache, large paper mache, like a large paper mache kind of structure. And then they that's a lot of paper gather all that. Yeah. Then they gather all the ashes and then they take it out to the ocean yeah. and send it out. Yeah. yeah. That was really interesting to yeah. see. Yeah. But I wasn't really ever part of that closely. Right, right, right. right. Any funny language mishap? that you recall? <laughs> um, let's see. And then I, I could share in, <laughs> in this setting. Uh, okay. uh, I think I'm going to pass. Okay. Yeah, minus two. You'll have to ask me later. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, one more question. What did you want to be when you were a kid? You when I was a kid, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Yes. Oh. An I don't know surgeon. where I got that idea. Yeah. Huh. It's very specific. Yeah. It Not just a surgeon, but North yes. Big one. I don't even think I knew what that word meant. <laughs> it sounds kind of fancy. Yeah, I think it seemed fancy and yeah. like really technical. Sounds cool. And right. I was like, ooh, yeah. Nice, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, this has been so great. Everything that you shared about suffering, I think that's just so important mm-hmm. to the discussion on missions and especially mm-hmm. for those who are considering missionary work. So mm-hmm. thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You know, Every time we talk to one of our workers, there's usually some part of their story that's very painful mm-hmm. and uncomfortable and some major area of grief and loss yeah. that they had to deal with. And this one was no exception. Yeah. And obviously she's long past it in terms of the chronology of the story. Right. But... um you can tell that this was a major redirection in her life and in her approach and her expectations of how God was going to use her on the field. Mm -hmm. Things did not turn out necessarily how she expected. But it's really clear that God had this all planned out ahead of time Mm -hmm. and that his plan was a lot more beautiful maybe than she even expected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just love how she's just like full on not shy about like butting heads Mm-hmm. with the suffering that she experienced, with the suffering that the Lord allowed into her life, but how it's not just this like kind of complaining, like, oh my goodness, woe is me sort of thing, but she really has um, just seen the beautiful picture that the Lord has drawn in her life through it, and that now 
she's going to help other people also kind of explore that a little bit more. Like for me personally, it's so easy for me just to be like, nah, like let's just up it down and like move on, right? Get, go on, get on with our lives. But she's like, no, we really are going to, she said over and over again, just to sit in it and just to really invite the Lord into what he's doing in our lives through that suffering. Right. And now with, with her role the way it is, she's able to kind of transfer her learnings and the things that she has grown into in her walk with the Lord and share that in with others okay. and empower them in their ministry. And so it's it's really clear that God had a plan, even though it sure didn't look like that mm. from the beginning. Yeah. And it was so cool to talk to her. Now, we have many people serving in Southeast Asia um, where Coco and her family were serving. And therefore, we have a lot of stories on our website. Mm. We have videos, um, photo essays, all sorts of things that we would invite you to check out as you explore um, the possibility of going somewhere and doing something like Coco and her family did. So once again, as we always say, um, you can check out all those resources on our website as well as talk to one of our mission mentors. Um, And they are available for you to talk to at pioneers.org. Go to our contact page or just start chatting at the bottom. If you're further along, if you feel like you're ready to start um, taking the journey, then go ahead and check out our start form. It's the right place to start. It only takes a few minutes, and before long, you will be able to schedule a conversation with one of our team. Hope to see you there. Thanks for following us on this episode of the Relentless Pursuit podcast. Our goal is to make missions accessible, to show that it's not just reserved for elite super-Christians. If you want to be involved, just go to pioneers.org start and answer a few questions. We have a team who would love to help you discern your calling and what your next steps might be. At Pioneers, we love to partner with local churches and send teams to people groups with little or no access to the gospel. Keep up with what God is doing by following us on Instagram, Facebook, X, and YouTube, all at Pioneers USA, one word, or visit pioneers.org. Thanks for listening.